Welcome to Celluloid Citizens, a podcast about film. I'm Sean M. Thompson. I'm Tiffany Morris. And I'm Christopher Burke. And on the episode today, uh, we're going to be covering Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, directed by, I believe it's Tommy Lee Wallace. Yep, Tommy Lee Wallace, written by Tommy Lee Wallace, Carpenter, and Nigel Neal, who chose to remain uncredited, yet is still on the IMDb. Starring <laughs> Tom Atkins as Daniel Chalice, Stacey Nelkin as Ellie Grimbridge, Dan O. Hurley as Conal Cochran. Those are the main ones, yeah. Heck of a name, Grimbridge. I wonder where that one came from. I don't know if they ever say it, like, overtly in the movie, the last name. They do, they do say it once or twice. I was just Taylor? getting back through some of it, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. So, I yeah, I like this movie a lot, but... Well, I guess we'll get into it, because it was much maligned for many years since it deviated um, from the Michael Myers formula, because you had Halloween that introduced Michael Myers, Halloween 2, where Michael Myers was back, and then Halloween 3 is just whatever the fuck this is. Yeah, in the marketing, were they kind of like hinting at Michael Myers being in it, or? I don't think they bothered, no, I think they were, I mean, I think I've seen the trailer, and it's just like... Just goes into the plot of the film, yeah. Yeah, I've I've read a review or two that I really liked that um that actually talked about why it was unreasonable for some people to be disappointed because like and in the review it mentioned you know there's nothing in the marketing or anything that would indicate that Michael Myers is in this and uh, you know it, it seems like at least some people were pretty well aware that that was going to be the case. Yeah, I, what I think is interesting and sort of sad really is so this was 1982, and um. You know, at this point, like, John Carpenter never wanted to do a Halloween sequel, but they were doing it anyway, so he was like, all right, well, I might as well be involved and get some money from it at least. Uh, So he, you know, worked, I think he wrote and did the score for Halloween 2, something like that. And then he had this idea, oh, well, we'll, like, just start doing a new Halloween film they wanted to do almost every year and just have a new scenario set on Halloween. So this was the first one that was going to, jump uh, that process off and then it did so poorly and people hated it so fucking much that he just gave up that idea entirely uh which i think uh, is a shame because it could have been interesting yeah the things that it could have been you know that's uh i mean somebody could still do great things with it <laughs> yeah but we still just keep digging up michael myers Maybe after Halloween ends, if it does indeed end, they could pick up from that concept and roll with it. But I, I doubt it. I doubt they will. <laughs> Since everything yeah. is a rehash of everything else these days, anyway. Um, so it's a it's a weird movie. We can all agree it's a weird movie. Yeah. Uh, Seems fair. I'm, uh, also, most of the plot is just Tom Atkins getting laid. <laughs> Far too much of it. <laughs> oh, but I think that's great that the driving factor is not any sort of like. Um, grand, like, heroic plans. It's just a divorced dad who's trying to get laid. Who's a doctor. <laughs> I he seems like to he the... should be, like, something sleazier than a doctor, right? But instead he's just a sleazy doctor. <laughs> well, I listened to the... I have the Blu-ray, so I listened to the commentary with him the other day, and he was like, what kind of doctor am I supposed to be? They had me on the worst <laughs> shift at the hospital. There's, like, no one there. And he's like, what do I do? Like... <laughs> Just valid. I I just saw him as maybe like general practitioner. I don't know. Yeah. He's got some issues going on though. Yeah, he's definitely not a great dad or husband. 
Or person. <laughs> or person, maybe. Um, yeah, it's a weird universe where basically everyone in this town seems to have had sex with Tom Atkins' character. <laughs> it's like literally every woman he interacts with he's either hitting on or has presumably had sex with. I mean, this is kind of my objection because, like, early into the movie, he grabs the nurse's ass, and I'm like, what are you doing, man? Like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Workplace harassment is not cool. Yeah. yeah so that like, was. I hate this guy. I mean, yeah, he's sort of. T- I guess what I love about this film is, like, you know, he's not like some hot 20 something dude who's very heroic. <laughs> he's like a fairly sleazy middle aged dad who. Appears to be a terrible doctor. Is flailing, just flailing through the whole film. I think it's an interesting contrast to like the the focus on the original one, where it's you know teen girls that are you know either sexually innocent or not, and that has to do with how their you know how their end is met. Uh, and here they just sort of start off with somebody who's way down past <laughs> past the age of teenagerhood and. He's been living a life for a while now, so there's really nothing much more to corrupt about him. Uh, and like <laughs> they just sort of start there. And then I also thought it was interesting to consider that juxtaposed with um, you know, later on, there's a there's a death that happens while they're having sex. And I thought that was an interesting commentary on the, the slasher tendencies. Yeah, what's hilarious about um, I mean, a lot of the behind the scenes of this movie is fairly funny. Uh, for one, uh, Nigel Neal who uh, did a Quatermass and the Pit, and he did a bunch of stuff for BBC. Uh, he did an adaptation of um, The Woman in Black. Um, so he wrote the script, and I guess Joe Dante was originally going to direct, and then when Joe Dante left, he was like, take my name off this. I don't want to like, <laughs> be associated. But like, so much of the Stonehenge and like weird sci-fi aspects of the plot, that's all Nigel Neal. But then, obviously, John Carpenter and Tommy Lee Wallace came in, and they are like, what if it was a horny dad? <laughs> um, so that's sort of the merging of it, and that sort of explains the weird tone and why I think... I know, Tiffany, you said, I mean, maybe understandably, you were like, I didn't love the first half of this, but once they got to the toy factory, I was in. Yeah, that's how I felt. Like I, I was like, if I wasn't watching it for this, then I probably would have turned it off. But I'm glad that I didn't, because... Um, sometimes with horror films, you just have to stick around and it gets better. And it definitely did in this case. I think what I love about it is like, it's always slightly off kilter from the moment the film starts. Like it's, it's always like, even when it's supposed to be quote realistic, it's never quite realistic. You truly don't know what it's going to do from one moment to the next, which is interesting. Yeah, it is. I have. I remember when I first watched this, I was like, where the fuck is this going? Because, <laughs> yeah. like, so much of the runtime is just Tom Atkins, and then, you know, he's sort of being like a citizen detective with Ellie and trying to figure out what happened to her dad and having sex with her just immediately. Um, yeah, it went very quickly. <laughs> and then, like, frequently after that. <laughs> Yeah, I guess mean, danger brings people together. I guess yeah. so. Another Death funny makes people horny. <laughs> a funny, um, I forget her name. Oh, maybe Linda Chalice that we're introduced to when he's in the town. She's in the room next door, and she gets her like face blown up by the microchip thing. That was his at the time actual wife. 
So in this, I mean, Tom Atkins. Oh, wow. So in the scene, he's having sex with this other woman while his actual wife at the time has her face like blown off. So well, I think she was reading a romance novel alone in bed, which like there's some signaling there, I would have to assume, too. And I thought like that's an even better layer to, <laughs> to what I was thinking. They about were either married at the time or they had like just divorced, but like they were married. So <laughs> adds another layer to it. Um, I love the the start of this movie. It's just a, a guy running into a gas station and you know, running from what we learn are, I mean, robots. Uh, but before we know that, it's just a bunch of men in suits chasing him. Uh, and kind of got a little bit of a Terminator vibe too. Yeah, it. and I think mm-hmm. he's—is he holding one of the masks? I forget. Uh, yeah, the first guy he shows up to the hospital still clutching a mask, so he has it on his person from something. Yeah, so it's an interesting way to start a film, especially since that guy just instantly dies. Um, in a very gruesome, I love the effect. It's just like he pokes his eyes out and then just sort of like snaps his, I think it's like the, the bone above his nose, uh, some part of his skull. He just kind of snaps it. It's pretty rough. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of damage to faces and heads in this, which I think lines up pretty well with the mask theme. Yeah. This film absolutely hates faces and heads. (laughs) Um, yeah, I'm, I definitely enjoyed all of the effects in the deaths. Yeah, they were effective, even though you know it's just like clearly just a bag they put snakes in. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean the the plot of you know I'm gonna hop around because like I don't know if like going beat by beat even makes sense. There's not a ton to this movie. I mean, definitely not in the the first half. It's just you know a, a guy dies, so Tom Atkins and. Uh, Stacy Nelkin drive off to this like isolated farming town in um California uh to investigate a toy factory. And then it isn't until the second half when you introduce robots and Stonehenge is somehow inside this building. <laughs> You've got the TV commercial that they, they start off early and they lay on often as the days progress with the silver shamrock yes mask. according and to the commentary so delightfully weird everybody hated this song so fucking much by the end of this movie which makes sense because you gotta understand that they're probably listening to at least every take or every scene's probably at least 10 times of that so they probably heard it hundreds of times by the end of the film they're more it's- mask filled than we are yeah. <laughs> It's um, so catchy. It was in my head all day, but it it shoved out another more annoying song. So <laughs> I kind of appreciated that. <laughs> yes, uh, the tune is actually "London Bridge." Oh, because he Tommy Lee Wallace actually is the the director is the the voice on the ads. Uh, oh. But he wanted to come up with something that obviously they wouldn't have any rights issues with. So he was like, you know, some sort of like nursery rhyme type of thing and he was like oh london bridge it's got that like do 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 and nice yeah i never noticed that i hadn't either i wouldn't have really picked up on it unless i read up but um so yeah we get introduced to daniel chalice the worst doctor ever who works in this very bare bones hospital that i mean i'm assuming it's a small town because there's there's really no one in this hospital 
Yeah, that town has kind of like a, uh, well, it kind of has like a, I don't know, almost like a messiah of evil vibes to it whenever they show the nighttime shots, whether it's in the company town or wherever that guy's located. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do love the scenes in the hospital. I mean, other than him grabbing some random nurse's ass. Uh, you know, you get the robot. Well, I mean, at this point, we have no idea that they're robots. But you get this man, you know, killing this guy with his fingers. And then going outside and covering himself in gasoline and blowing his car up. I do love a self-immolation. Like, it's always effective to me. <laughs> I just think it's funny that, you know, since it's back in the day and they didn't have the CG yet, like, they just actually blow up a car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three seconds after the, the fire starts. Yeah, I mean, you know. Um, it, I don't know. It's always more effective when it's like a real effect. I get why people don't necessarily want to be blowing up cars now as much. Uh, but it's still very striking, especially when it's in Halloween 3, where otherwise there's really not anything like this big. I mean, there is, but I guess it's like, you know, more of a effect. Well, doesn't Halloween 2 end with uh, an explosion at a hospital? I, th I thought that might be there's just sort of a nod there to the previous movie. It might movie. have been that, yeah. I think they blow up Michael Myers in a hospital room. Yeah, you know, you got these Halloween masks. The plot is pretty bananas, you know, like, okay, we're going to, like, sell these masks to children and get them all to watch this big giveaway on Halloween night at 9. And I'm like, first of all, your plan is flawed. Because it's Halloween, like. Kids are going to be out, aren't they? Eh, they should probably be getting back around nine. That's maybe, probably when I got Maybe, finished. but like, so it's like, you know, there's like a, it's a little, it's not entirely ironed out, but basically there's like this computer chip that's like magic, I guess, in the masks that gets activated when the kids are wearing the mask and watching the, um, watching the ad or the giveaway. And it, it blows up their head. Sort of, and makes snakes and bugs come out of it. And somehow Serpents. that's going to lead to taking over the world. <laughs> it's kind of convoluted. We didn't think this all the way through. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of the funnier parts of the commentary on both ends. Is They both, you know, Atkins and the director and the separate commentaries both admit, yeah, I don't know that the plan would work. Because <laughs> it's like There's not so every kid kids. has the mask, for one. Um, and then also, what about the adults? Like, not every adult is just going to stand still while the snakes attack and kill them. And <laughs> um, anti-venom exists, right? <laughs> right, yeah, out. that too. So, like, all the kids will be dead. Well, not all, but a lot of the kids will be dead. But, I mean, that that's sort of it, I think. It's weird, because when you describe it, it seems really goofy, but, like... That scene, when it happens in the film, like, it really turned my feelings about it around. Like, I was just like, this is really, it's kind of emotional, and it's um, kind of harrowing to watch. Yeah, it's... Hugo. Yeah, I, uh, I was going to say, there's so many weird little seeming distractions that end up being important, but at the time, you don't really register them all that much, that, like, all that weird... Goofy shit that seems random sort of helps you power through the suspension of disbelief, I think. 
and it just kind of just keeps going. Oh, sure, we're going to throw lasers in here. That's the kind of world we're in, so whatever, you know? Yeah, I do like the juxtaposition of um, the occult with the, um, I guess, science fictional elements, which is all Nigel Neal. But yeah, it's, uh, it is interesting, but also doofy. It does remind me, I recently watched uh, The Omen 3, and it's another s- relatively similar kind of a thing where the Antichrist has apparently been born as a baby. <laughs> So Sam Neill's character, who is Damien as an adult, is just like, go kill all the firstborn babies. <laughs> That's his solution, was like, well, I don't know which baby in particular is Jesus, so just go kill all the babies born in this certain window when I know Jesus was born, or, you know, like, resurrected inside a baby. Doesn't that happen in the Bible? Uh, pff, Isn't there I, a time yeah. when it's like, kill all the firstborns? Okay. Yeah, there, <laughs> that is from the Bible. Um, I, I, I haven't retained enough of the Bible to remember specifically. I think that's in Egypt. Yeah, I think that's the story of Passover, if I remember right. So, like, that's when you paint, you have to paint certain signs on your yeah, front door yeah. to indicate that, you know, the angel of death needs to pass by. Yeah, but going. this is, this is like a lot goofier. This is just like a bunch of kids will wear masks and their heads will explode with snakes. <laughs> But it does sort of have that, like, tie-in with, um... I mean, one of the interesting things about Halloween 3 is it's, like, of all of them, it's the one that really goes into what Halloween is, you know? It mentions Sam Hain. It has, I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Dan O'Hurley. He might be Irish, but he's, like, the most British-seeming Irish guy. <laughs> um... But then, I mean, maybe that's offensive. It would be worse if he was like, oh, yeah, you know, so. <laughs> um, Colonel Cochran is a very Irish name. But he goes into, you know, like, Halloween is, the you know, it's about the dead and, you know, gets into that sort of, like, old Celtic thing of, like, here's Stonehenge. So we've got the standing <laughs> stones. And so I brought Stonehenge to me. I mean, that's another <laughs> amazing one. It's like, how the... How how did you how did you move Stonehenge for one? It's got some pulleys. I yeah I guess <laughs> so. Fine, okay, fine. Somehow you managed to move Stonehenge onto say a boat and then a truck. Fine. <laughs> did you have to build the entire factory around Stonehenge? Oh, that's a good question. What was the city planning involved in Stonehenge? Because it, it does seem like a factory town. Like everything's based yeah. around the factory. Uh, fun fact before I forget, um, there's a voice over a loud uh, intercom system in the town uh, that is Jamie Lee Curtis's voice. I forget oh, nice. what she actually says. It's just something about, like, they might have a curfew. curfew? I don't remember. Yeah, it's curfew. For some reason, so I was she's, like, what the fuck? <laughs> she's Why? speaking out loud uh, through the, but yeah, it's Jamie Lee Curtis, I think. Yeah, I don't, you know, it's it's a weird movie in that, like, I don't feel like it really gets going until they get to the town. Mm-hmm. And when they meet uh, Buddy and the geniusly named Little Buddy. <laughs> it's like, well, we got this adult named Buddy. What are we going to call the kid? <laughs> Little Buddy. Um, who rides off on his bike and flips us off. Yeah, it's a hard film to talk about. I don't know. It's really... I'm trying to, like... Figure out how to, like, attack it. It's, it's so many disparate elements. Well, maybe it would be interesting to talk about, like, 
how it relates to the like the the first one because I think a lot of people just sort of feel like it has nothing to do with it and I thought that was probably the most interesting part is that it sort of does thematically but you know not really all that much in terms of plot because it's so much bigger in scale. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. How does it? Well, I mean, for one, it's the children in peril. I mean, they're younger children, you assume, but it's still dealing with innocence and you know, children or teenagers and um, someone destroying that innocence. Uh, in this case, yeah, it's a much larger scale and it's more um, technological rather than like uh, analog, I guess, which would be a knife. Um, so yeah, there are similarities in that regard. I like I like how they have the footage of the actual original Halloween on that bar TV, and then it gets interrupted by that commercial. I thought that felt very like Joe Dante to me, so I'm not really surprised that at one point he was attached to it. Yeah, I do love that it's a universe where Halloween, the first film, is a film. <laughs> so it's either like another dimension Halloween happened in, or it's just like Halloween is just a... Well, I guess in this universe, yeah, Halloween is a film. Which is always interesting when they do that. It's, it's a nice little nod. Um, I think John Carpenter also did the score for this one. It sounds yeah. like him. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's a little... It's less... I would say maybe a little less memorable than the uh, the Halloween score. Just the Halloween score is so simple, you know? Uh, but this one's... It's, like, layered and, like, actually kind of has more going on with it, I think. Yeah, it's, like, a really different approach, whereas, where, like, the first one has all these, like, stabbing piano sounds or synth sounds, and this one's all, all about the ambience. And it's and there was one part that I noticed toward the end that was pretty much directly lifted by It, it Follows for the soundtrack there, and I hadn't, hadn't realized that before because I hadn't seen – I only saw Halloween for the first time or excuse me, Halloween three for the first time a couple months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Which one, which part was that? It's toward the end when he's like creeping around at night and sort of on the run. Uh, I think it's either right after he escapes from that room or, uh, you know, somewhere within like 10 minutes of, of when he's locked in that room that he gets out of. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to describe. I, I'm not going to try to replicate it. Yeah. No, voice, no, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've trust me. I've tried to do vocal, approximations and it never works just has never worked <laughs> other than that's maybe london bridge people do them. <laughs> what's that that's why i love when people do them <laughs> it's always so fun. that's true it's never yeah it never entirely works um it's so good it feels like the real version of what stranger things tries to accomplish with with their music but like this is like really on edge like genuinely tense stuff for like a sustained period of time i, I really love the soundtrack yeah, yeah. Yeah, the synth in the opening especially, like, really stressed me out. It was, um, I felt really layered and intense in that way you were mentioning. It's hypnotic. It's like, it's perfect for the whole theme of, you know, brainwashing all these people. It is, you know, it is interesting, too. It's seeing John Carpenter sort of stretches the uh, musical, you know, muscles a little bit. Because, yeah, there are, like, parts that are slower, and you almost, like aren't aware of the score but it's just sort of like in the background uh and then it'll swell back up and you know that makes sense obviously the difference between the first one which is a lot of like 
you know, the stabs or the synths. And then this one, it's, you know, more, um, kind of a creeping dread and like building and like dissipating kind of a thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to talk about this film without mentioning the fact that like how much people fucking hated this movie when it first came out. They were wrong. <laughs> it just, yeah, I think it was maybe too ahead of its time in terms of, but that's sort of if you go through a lot of stuff that tries to do, tries to start an anthology or like differentiate a little bit. Um, people tend to dislike it. Um, especially, you know, in the eighties. Yeah. And to be fair, that's a weird thing to do at the third movie. Like it, it might be more expected if from the second movie you're starting to pivot and it's like an anthology franchise. Yeah. I think that's the interesting thing is I, I forgot who said this, but basically, uh, if Halloween three was Halloween two, people might've loved it. But I think by the time you've had Michael Myers for two full films, um, yeah, I mean, people, you know, it's like the double-edged sword of like, if they had just called it, say, Season of the Witch, and it had been its own thing, then not as many people would see it because it's not building off of the Halloween franchise. But at the same time, by using it as a sequel to Halloween, you piss people off because people showed up thinking it'd be Michael Myers. Even if they did see a trailer and, you know, there were other things, I think people are stupid. Let's be real about this. <laughs> so they were probably like, he's got to be in it somehow because it's Halloween. Um, they do show like a profile shot of one of the villains. And I think it was staged specifically to look like a profile of Michael. And I thought that was sort of like the genius little garnish on top of it, you know, toward the end when uh, when he's creeping around the studio. Yeah, I mean, the whole movie, you know, it's about masks as well, so that's similar. Yeah. Um, I think I actually, um, I don't know, I haven't watched the Halloween franchise, like the Michael Myers movies. See, in a really I long was going to say, if you've actually seen the other ones, Halloween 3 is like my favorite because it's like in juxtaposition. It's like, oh, I love it so much more. Yeah. Because I feel like there's only so much you can do with that story, maybe. Um, there really is, but they sure still did, like, ten movies. <laughs> yes. That doesn't mean they should have. There's one where Busta Rhymes <laughs> kicks him out a window. I think that was H2O, maybe. So, yeah, it gets pretty ridiculous. And then you've had the most recent ones, you know, the, the quote trilogy. Um, and Halloween supposedly ended with Halloween Ends, but... No one believes that because, yeah, you know, if ever there's a franchise that's not going to end, it's this one. <laughs> I know you had the Rob Zombie stuff in like the mid two thousands or maybe later two thousands, which I'll be honest, I don't love Rob Zombie's work. Um, it had his stink all over it. You know, suddenly everybody's like, "Wow, what the fuck?" and just swearing and. You know, suddenly Michael Myers is not the shape. He's just a shitty little kid that's, like, hitting people with sticks. So I didn't love... Yeah. I didn't love that, um, the revamp. The first yeah. revamp, I guess. One thing I really liked about Halloween 3 um, that I, I don't suspect is present in the other ones from my very hazy teenage memory of having watched them um, 
is like, despite how silly it seems on the surface, like it actually is saying some really interesting things, I think, about like uh, corporate encroachment on childhood and like um, the role of mass media in shaping children's minds and people's minds in general and just like the drive of consumerism and consumption. And um, there's anxiety about like the role of malls um, versus like mom and pop shops and so I think it's it's driving at some really interesting things um, beneath the kind of like insane <laughs> plot. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there is an interesting thing going on with the whole reason um, Ellie's dad got the masks in the first place was he had a small store and he wanted to, you know, to have a little bit more money coming in. So he bought the masks to sell through his store. Um so yeah, there is that sort of like the death of the mom and pop and the fear of like mass media and um corporatization and uh big business, I guess. Um which is interesting though cuz like the whole thing is um you know, even the people that go there just to get new masks, they start bitching about how Cochrane used to be better with the small mom and pop outfits and now that he's bigger it's harder to get in touch with him and harder to confirm the orders so there's definitely i mean right down to the town they go to too that looks like completely deserted and sort of like um economically sparse save for maybe the factory as probably yeah, yeah it's speaking to like you know the death of certain types of towns due to like a lack of economic infrastructure Maybe. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that yeah. they um oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you can go. I was just, I, I thought it was uh interesting that they uh, they had a character that was sort of the town drunk in the company town and he mentioned that he had been displaced by this company town and now it wouldn't hire him. And yeah, you know, that's that whole conversation he has with uh Dan, uh when Dan's trying to get um details about Cochrane. And then that guy gets axed. <laughs> so he, there's definitely like the displacement of like the mom and pops by the the new malls is also sort of echoed in other ways too. I, th I think that's definitely a good strength of the movie. Yeah, I would say so. And um, the setting as well, that town, they, it's an actual town they filmed in. Uh, I think it's in Northern California, maybe. Um, but it is, it apparently does sort of look like that still. It's just like a lot of closed shops and just like very, if you drive in, you feel people watching you. You know, typical kind of small town stuff. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a weird movie. I'll say it again. Uh, there are robots in this movie. <laughs> Boy, are there. <laughs> there are. They are filled with frozen orange juice. That is what the, the weird blood stuff is. It's oh, it's like literally actually orange juice. <laughs> yeah, it's like frozen orange juice that they I just. I love wow. that. That's great. And it does I look like motor oil at first. Uh, I mean, I, there's other stuff I'm sure they use, but um, <laughs> the scene I'm thinking of in particular when he like punches the guy in the chest and comes back and he's got all the stuff on his hand, that's frozen orange juice. Oh, maybe it's like spinach for the robots. <laughs> maybe. One of my big questions, since we've already hopped around a lot, um, and it's never really spelled out, but was Ellie a robot the entire time, or did she just become a robot when she was kidnapped in the factory? 
I assumed she was one the entire time. And then I was like, how did he have sex with this robot so much and not even notice? <laughs> like, there's no way she was that advanced. It was the 80s. And they also established, you know, they're not very, you can knock the head off. Yes. <laughs> they're fairly easily with a tire iron. Yeah, it sort of becomes a zombie movie the way those, you know, creepy automatons are lurking around in like they're slow motion and not really threatening. But then when they all get over you and rip your head off, you know, it's over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think it's funny. I learned uh, Tommy um, Lee Wallace had originally wanted every one of the men in suits to be red haired, but they wouldn't do it or they just didn't have enough redheads to use. Um <laughs> There's sort of a maybe not even subtle anti-Irish thing going on in that, you know, Cochrane is more or less the devil and is going to kill all of these children. Uh, I think it would have been more overt had all the robots been red-haired. But, <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's so, so bad, but, you know... Definitely a weird fixation. Yeah, it's definitely. The company's called Silver Shamrock, and I realize that's probably equally to do with the fact, you know, trying to deal with Sam Hain and the origins of Halloween. Um, but it still sort of comes off as anti-Irish a little bit. It's weird, too, because, like, Stonehenge is in England and not right, Ireland. Right, it's English. Yeah, it's sort of muddled in that regard, because it's like, I don't know. I know Cochran's supposed to be Irish, but I saw him as English the entire time. It's much easier to believe an old English guy is evil than an old <laughs> Irish American man. <laughs> That's true. So yeah, the plot, the actual plot itself, the best I can understand is Stonehenge, Stonehenge has this power, which people have suspected. They kidnap. They didn't kidnap Stonehenge because Stonehenge isn't a person. They stole <laughs> Stonehenge. <laughs> They rock-napped it. They rock-napped it. <laughs> put it. They either somehow put it inside this already huge factory or built the factory around Stonehenge. Um, and they're somehow harnessing the power of Stonehenge to kind of transmit through television receivers and um, the signal will hit these chips that are built into the... Um, into the mask. I want to say maybe there's some rock, like little bits of Stonehenge inside the chips. It's huh. something like that. And then I when the kids sure. watch the the TV, it like, you know, turns their heads to snakes somehow, which, you know, there's a big question mark. There's a, how does that happen? But whatever. I mean, it's magic. Just assume it's magic. For me, well, it's, it's more of an exclamation point, Riley. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I was really uh, surprised when that happened because it was just it was such a dark turn in a film that I mean was also dark, but not that dark. You know, um, it was just kind of fleetingly ominous up until that point, and then it was just like the realization of uh, what was happening. Yeah, you go from a film where Daniel Chalice is like literally inside a obviously much younger woman, and there's a scream off screen and he's, she's like, what was that? And he's like, who cares? So you go from that <laughs> film to literally a child's head bursting into bugs and snakes. And the parents are in the room and see it. 
and then get killed by the snakes. So yeah, it's sort of it's, yeah, it's a drastic turn. Um, I yeah, think the implication is supposed to be that Ellie was a robot after she got kidnapped in the factory, but I don't know. Like they turned her into a robot. Yeah, like they turned her into a robot. But she's very. That's I mean, how I took it. I, if there's one flaw, well, there there are flaws, obviously, in Halloween Three. One of the no. big ones <laughs> is uh, Stacy Nelkin's acting. She's just not a great actress. Um, but then it's like later on, I'm like, but was she act? I mean, this is giving her too much credit, I think. But it's like, is she acting that way to seem more robotic? But I don't think that's the case. I think it's more like her performance is just a little like robotic 1982 is a great year for movies about whether or not someone was a robot (laughs) (laughs) what else did we have blade runner ah blade runner yes yes yeah this is obviously um if we're getting into you know uh (laughs) yeah artificial intelligence obviously blade runner like is the more actually getting into the philosophy of that whereas halloween 3 is like oh no the head fell off (laughs) so they're almost more like enormous wind-up toys yeah, uh, in Halloween three, which is interesting because Cochran is established as a toy maker. Um, it's also weird to think about the fact that maybe Tom Atkins was just having sex with an enormous, more or less, sex toy robot this whole movie, and he's just the least perceptive person on earth. <laughs> I mean, that wouldn't surprise me from that character. I did really enjoy the scene where they go through the like toy museum quote-unquote they call it um and go over those old wind-up toys that's a really it's a really interesting comparison because they they do seem to have limited utility and limited awareness like they're just yeah they're just kill bots of, they're like kill bots yeah um let's not ask how they move or any of that uh how they have like how they somehow think let's not ask that either Magic. You can just say magic. Yeah, the end of this movie is pretty dark because it does not end on a happy ending. Uh, It literally ends... uh, The implication is, like, it's going forward and all the kids are going to die. Or at least, you know, the kids that wear wear the masks. Yeah. And then, well, and also they they made sure to show in that focus group room the first time we really see what's going to happen. The the kid gets killed by the mask, but then there's like a rattlesnake that comes out and kills the parents or kills one of them anyway. So there's – I guess that's how they're going to take care of the parents is with snake is with the poisonous snakes that come out. Do rattlesnakes kill people that quickly? No, they do not. Okay. <laughs> it takes a little while. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you would die, I think, if you um, – Went untreated. Yeah, if it was left entirely untreated, I think you could die within a couple hours. Uh, but – no, it's not like um, there are snakes that if they bit you, you'd die that fast. But it's I don't think a rattler's like that. Although props that they actually got a rattlesnake. Oh, you that know, was real. Yeah, no, like if you go back and watch it, it's a rattlesnake. Um, Emily knows about uh, reptiles. Apparently, the way you can tell the venomous ones is they have more of a uh, like a boxy kind of a head. Mm. Mm. Um, so it's like more of a. Yeah, I don't know, more of a boxy kind of head. But it does have a rattler, too, and you can see it. So it is funny for me that, like, they bothered to wrangle a rattlesnake to put in a bag uh, to <laughs> get to leave. And then, like, you know, it does bite 
Uh, I'm assuming it's a fake leg, obviously. I hope it's a fake leg, or at least somebody with a lot of padding. But it does bite the guy on the leg. Um, and obviously the snakes is, uh, it's getting into Celtic stuff again, because you get the whole, I never pronounced this right, the Araboros, Araboros, Or the mm -hmm. snake eating its own tail, which is from Celtic, uh, lore and mythology. Um, but yeah. yeah and I think snakes are also associated with, like, medicine and healing, right? So there's a kind of irony in it. Um, yeah, related little... to Charles's character and like also this idea that maybe they're they're healing the earth like I don't know the precise reason why they were sacrificing children other than that it was like an ancient right well but I, I don't know the best what, part like, is for crops? He, he just says you know trick or treat and we've lost you know this is a great trick like that's his main that's his actual explanation yeah really? I, I like when he I like when he says do I need a reason and it's like just sort of and uh, taking that moment to me, I think that was a good um, way of looking at the fact that this is a, a largely about consumer culture and the sort of like mindlessness of it all. And it doesn't necessarily have a good reason for it. Nevertheless, you know, it's still evil there. <laughs> I mean, there is a telling line early on when they're doing the, t the factory tour. And uh, Buddy says Cochran is like the king of the practical joke. Uh, he does say mm. he does unfortunately mention there's like. It's something with a little person, he says, Midget. It's like a list of more normal-seeming pranks, and then, like, the dusty Midget or something. And I'm like, wait, what is that? And they never <laughs> explain it. And I I have yet to, to read anywhere what it's supposed to be. I forgot the exact term, but it's something weird like that, just as an offhand. And I'm like, oh, wait, what is that one? Um <laughs> But yeah, so they establish he's a practical joker, and I guess if you were a real sick person, yeah, this would be an amazing practical joke. Although I would also say it's mass murder, so maybe not a joke. Yeah, it's uh, it's maybe a prank rather than a joke. Yeah, I do love the implication that he had to work his business up from the ground up. You know, he had to like actually run a business and like <laughs> you know get everything, get the distribution, get the ads, and. So, like, he really had to, like, make a business, and his whole goal was just, I'm going to kill a bunch of children with snakes. It's so elaborate. Yeah. I, hmm. That's interesting. For some reason, I thought that there was more to it than that, but I like that, like you were saying, Chris, I like that there's not. Like, it's, it is a better commentary on um, consumerism and childhood without having any direct meaning <laughs> yeah i mean i think if there's any one thing you can take away maybe it's cochran's trying to gain power um mm -hmm. yeah although that's a sort of a weird way to do it because nobody know, like you know like if he told people it would happen well i guess that wouldn't work because then they wouldn't wear the masks um yeah i don't know actually i'm not sure how this works because it's like effectively he just kills a bunch of kids i don't know I don't know how much power he can get from that part. I mean, people are just going to be real rip shit. Hey, my kid turned into snakes. So, yeah, it's one of those, maybe don't overthink it. <laughs> <laughs> he just kind of hints at it being like a new world after this big sacrifice. It's, it's kind of the, like, there's just a little bit of an implication there. But then there's also the juxtaposition of, do I need a reason? You know, like, they're both kind of happening at once. Yeah, I mean, you know, we are getting into standing stones and... It's never been confirmed, but the theory is that 
at least animals were sacrificed to the standing stones for a good harvest. Um, it's never been confirmed whether humans were sacrificed, but maybe. Um, would stand to reason. Um, so it, if you're looking at it from a magical perspective, it could be, you know, just this massive sacrifice to the standing stones would give you a massive amount of uh, magical power. But I just don't know to what end. Like, what would he? What is he going to do with it? And yeah, maybe he just wants it to have it. He wants to open a second location. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah, and then the me. end is uh, the end is Tom Atkins screaming at the screen, "Stop it!" I mean, before oh, yeah. that, there's that amazing. He's driving back and. Um, Ellie is a robot and tries to kill him. Another fun fact I learned from the commentary is there's a shot where the car is like, you know, coming towards the screen sort of, and they just had like a person driving it. And if like they got out of control and if they hadn't bumped oh, into that telephone pole, everybody behind the camera would have gotten hit by the car. Oh my God. So if you That's actually go true. back, there's one scene and it sort of jumps from the... And it is basically something to the effect of, like, we told them, you know, go at such and such a speed, and they went much faster for no reason. Um, but they, they jump from the road, and it just, like, sort of dings the back um, against, like, a telephone pole, I think. And then it smashes into a tree. Again, another thing of, like, back in the day, they would just smash a car. Um and obviously this wasn't a huge budget, so they're just like, okay, drive the car into the tree, and hopefully it doesn't hit us while we film it. Well, I love how... Go, go ahead. ahead. You go. Okay. Uh, I was, sorry. I was going to say, I love how when they emerge from the factory uh, after after getting free, it just looks like a, a nightmare painting of hell or something like that that, they're, that he's driving through and uh, and I love that sort of Twilight Zone ending that they have there. <laughs> it reminded me a lot of that uh, Where Is Everybody episode, where he's like hollering into the phone. Yeah, I do think it's interesting this was a time when there were only four channels, so... I, I mean, I still don't really buy it, but ostensibly you could maybe get them to take a ad off the air if you called them. Uh, I just don't... I don't know if they would do it, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's some guy calling They'd be like, people are drunk like, and pranking. Yeah, some guy calls once and you're just like, okay, yeah, let's take off this <laughs> let's take off these ads we've been running for months because this one guy claims that it's gonna turn kids into snakes. <laughs> but you know, he can't get yeah. the fourth channel. That's the the fourth channel. Yeah, I love this one phone call too. It's apparently the one man in charge of every TV station in that area at least. Yeah, I appreciated that it was that unhappy ending um, because it just reinforces the message that we've discussed already. You know, um, if it had been happy, I don't know, I think it would have cheapened it. I yeah, mean, definitely. It's, yeah, it's ambiguous, but like there's definitely some kids that are going to die. Like that's <laughs> at the very least, there's some kids that are going to turn into snakes and die. Um. Or not even, I keep saying that, that's like the cleaner version. It's just like snakes crawl out of their body and orifices. And bugs. And bugs. The bugs are gross. Um, <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, I guess uh, we're getting around the hour mark. So wrapping up, um, I don't know. Does anyone have final kind of thoughts about uh, Halloween 3 in general? I'll throw some in there real quick. Um, I thought um, I thought it was great the first time I watched it, which was just a couple months ago. Uh, and I've never really been a huge Halloween franchise person. Uh, I only really got into the first one after like several attempts because I just kind of found it boring the first few times I watched it. And then over time, I grew to appreciate like the craft of it all. But like it, you know, it took a long time for me to really recognize it as a as the masterpiece that it is. This one, I was just like floored by immediately. I didn't care how ridiculous it was. It just does such a good job creating those weird, creepy refrains and the, the hypnotic sensibilities to it. And it's just kind of a wacky plot with an interesting theme. And uh, I don't know. It worked really well for me once I got to that halfway point. I was a little bit on the fence for the first half, though. Uh, Tiffany, what about you? Yeah, that was uh, my experience, too. Um, I think that it's definitely, as someone who isn't overly familiar with the Halloween franchise, um, I really appreciated it as just kind of a one-off uh, Halloween-themed movie. Um, I think that it's it's really interesting in how it balances its elements um, successfully for the most part. Um, but you kind of have to, yeah, stick it through to see how it all kind of coheres together. Um, yeah, it, it intrigues me that... Um, the magic aspect and the science fiction aspect coexist and don't really conflict. But also I think that might be because it's not really fully explained, um, which I appreciate. So yeah, that's pretty much my thoughts about it. Well, I will say I own, I, I established, I own this on Blu-ray. Um, I, yeah, I don't know what it is about this movie. I, I figured out it's probably the Nigel Neal. So after I watched Halloween 3, I got intrigued, like, what is the, you know, all the Standing Stone stuff was like, oh, that's really interesting. And I'd liked um, Clive Barker's Undying, for instance, which was a game back in the 90s. And it was sort of related Standing Stones to, like, this cursed family. And, you know, like, you know, I'm a sucker for anything with Standing Stones. So I went back and kind of researched into what Nigel Neal had done. Um, he did this series. He did a lot of them, too. It was weird. Uh, Quatermass. He was just basically this character that was a kind of a scientist, mad scientist type. Um, but he was doing a lot of this sort of like uh, intersectionality of science fiction and the occult, which is interesting because if you watch something like uh, 1967's Quatermass in the Pit, which was a uh, hammer horror, it's basically like they find it's, it's bonkers. First of all, they find these like ape man skeletons when they're doing this uh construction on the uh the london underground the train system and then fairly shortly after that they find a rocket and that somehow ties to like these enormous kind of cricket like things that are somehow martians and like you know like was the human race formed by these kind of Martian bugs that like took us and did experiments on us. But like, you know, that is also getting into the intersectionality of science fiction and horror because the area is called, um, I believe it's Hobbs end or something like that, which is something like, you know, some old school, uh, phrase for the devil. 
So it's getting into like, you know, if hundreds of years ago, if someone saw something that we would think of now as science fiction or, you know, Martians, like what, what would they see it as? They'd probably see them as demons. So yeah, Nigel Neal is a very interesting writer. He did some very interesting uh, projects. And I think the interesting thing about Halloween 3 is it's probably the most, one of the more mainstream things he managed to get because it was sort of taken away from him a little bit and then given to John Carpenter, who kind of Americanized it. But it's still there. And that's definitely like that's the last half of um, Halloween 3. It's like, it's very interesting. So if nothing else, I'm very thankful to Halloween 3 for introducing me to the work of Nigel Neal. Obviously, John Carpenter is a great um, stylist and he's great with the music. So that's always fun. Um, interesting thing, I know too much about this movie, by the way, because I've watched two commentaries on it now. The director of photography went on to do Back to the Future, I think, and also nice. Jurassic Park. So nice. the same guy that was doing Halloween 3 ended up going to do Jurassic Park. But even in 1982, he went from Halloween 3 to, or I'm not sure of the order, but he did Halloween 3 and The Thing. He was the director of photography on both those films, both in 1982. So that's insane. What an amazing career. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. That's, um, I believe it's Dean. Let me look it up. It's going to bother me otherwise. Uh, do, 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 do. Dean Cundy, yes. Uh, and it's always funny, you know, when you get somebody who goes on to have, like, a huge career who started, because it's, it's often they start in horror films, for one. Uh, for some reason, horror and, you know, genre films are just, I guess, an easier in for a lot of people. Um, I guess in that, like, you know, it's a little more forgiving. Like, you can be maybe not the best actor and people will still watch and love your movie. Um, but yeah, Dean Cundy's done a lot. He's done a lot of stuff. Um... Trying to think. Oh, he did Flubber, apparently, the Robin Williams one. I'm ignoring you. that. <laughs> Apollo 13, Casper, Jurassic Park, Death Becomes Her Hook, Back to the Future, Part 2, 3, um, Big Trouble in Little China, and the first Back to the Future. So he's he did a lot of stuff. Psycho 2, we will not mention. <laughs> oh, and he did do Halloween 2 as well. Um, Escape from New York, The Fog. Yeah, he did a lot of stuff. He did the first Halloween as well. Now I'm just reading his IMDb. This is not a good podcast <laughs> right now. Not exactly a lightweight. No, but yeah, he did a ton of stuff. And I mean, yeah, visually, Halloween 3 is very striking. I would say like plot and visuals sometimes almost make up for maybe some lax acting. Although I love Tom Atkins. Um, pretty much every movie Tom Atkins is in, he's playing more or less the same guy. He's just somehow a dad that's banging all these people for one, <laughs> which I just think is a weird kind of like brand. It's just like the, maybe not even that attractive dad who's just somehow plowing his way <laughs> through the world. Also, he just kind of looks like Chuck Norris to me. He does. He does look a little like Chuck Norris, like he's related to him. Um, but it is funny because it's like Tom Atkins is in, say, The Fog. And his character is a guy driving by and he picks up Jamie Lee Curtis, who's hitchhiking. And she asks him, are you weird? And he says, yes. And then the next scene, they've had sex. 
So, like, it's just this weird thing of, like, whenever they cast Tom Atkins, I think it almost became a bit um, where he's just, like, except for Night of the Creeps, where he's, like, his wife is dead and he's suicidal. But yeah, that makes it sound like a more serious movie. It's it's still a thing about slug monsters. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I've, I'm rambling a lot. I have a lot of disparate information in my brain. But, yeah, in general, Halloween 3... It's a lot of fun. I do like to watch it around every Halloween. It's like a good movie to also have on in the background. Like, I feel like you could throw this on at a Halloween party and like, it's fine. You know, like you, you look over, there's a robot. You're like, what the fuck is happening? And you go back to your conversation. <laughs> um, but yeah, Halloween three, 1982. It's neat. Uh, so Yeah think that's gonna uh wrap it up we're on twitter at celluloid sits we're on anchor.fm celluloid citizens i'm very slowly trying to get uh the episodes up on the youtube uh, channel it's gonna take a while because there's like over a hundred and i think i'm at maybe 20 right now but yeah so you know if you like the show tell your friends um we do have I guess officially two sideshows we're doing, uh, Tiffany and I. Um, dark Side Citizens is the one where we cover Tales from the Dark Side, and I'm going to be dropping a new one. You've probably heard it by the time this is out, because I'm going to drop it first. Uh, about Are You Afraid of the Dark, called uh, Are You Afraid of the Citizens. Because I just am a cheese, and I love horror anthology stuff, and I just, I gave up. I was like, I want to cover it, and I don't know how else to, so. Uh, but yeah, uh, Tiffany, do you have anything to promote? Um, I always freeze up at this question. <laughs> uh, my podcast, uh, Verses from the Void, uh, is a horror poetry podcast. Um, I will be having new episodes later in the month, hopefully. Um, just hit a bit of a snag. Um, and yeah, you can check that out on Anchor, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. And yeah, of course, um, Dark Side Citizens and Are You Afraid of the Citizens? And you, she is going to be having a poetry book coming out in November. Oh, right. My, my poetry book. <laughs> yeah. You know, like the big one that we've been talking about for six months. I'm, I'm kidding. But yes, okay. She is, you know, my press, uh, Nick Detaining Books, is doing a uh, poetry book from Tiffany. It's a wonderful book uh, called Elegies of Rotting Stars. It's got a banging cover from Luke Spooner. And uh, it will fuck you up. So, yeah. But, I mean, you know, I'll I'll tweet like crazy when that comes out. Uh, Chris, what about you? Do you have anything to promote? Uh, yeah, mainly a uh, couple of uh, – I've put a couple of movie essays up on my website at ChristopherBurkeWords.com uh, throughout the year. I'd say uh, if you're interested in some long reads on Byzantium or a dark song, uh, some things like that, along with a couple other samples – I'll have those. Uh, those are up there now for free, and then I'm also probably going to be launching a Patreon, and there'll be uh, stuff there when I'm ready to make that announcement. Nice. Yeah, there is a Patreon for Celluloid Citizens. I do want to get back to it at some point. I just really have no idea what to do, to be honest. Um, But in theory, there will be some Patreon exclusives. I know Chris and I covered, uh, for instance, Twin Peaks The Return. There's an episode on that. Uh, we had a torture porn episode with uh, Brian O'Connell and Chris and myself discussing, I believe it was Hostel 
uh, Saw, Hostel, and I think Martyrs was the other one to get into the new French yep. extremity. Yeah. So that's pretty good. If you want to throw me a dollar, you can listen to those. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's going to wrap it up. Uh, until next time, I'm Sean M. Thompson. I'm Tiffany Morris. I'm Christopher Burke. And uh, I guess make sure the woman you're having sex with isn't a robot. Unless that's your thing. I mean, I don't want to kink shame. Well, that's a weird intro. <laughs> intro? 13 more days till Halloween. <laughs> Three more yeah, days Yeah, I can't Halloween. believe we didn't <laughs> quote that at any point. I'll probably work it in right now, because I hate the thing I just did as an outro, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Robot Sex Podcast. <laughs> oh, please don't open the door to that. No. Although you could cover, um, what's it? Lars and the Real Girl. I've never seen it. Well, that's more. Okay, I don't want to. Okay, we're done. We're done now.